Our Father, your faithfulness to us is profound, and we recognize it not only through the reading of the Word of God, but through our own daily experience. We acknowledge you, we give you our love and thankfulness for all that you are and all that you do. And Father, as we gather together in fellowship and as we center our thoughts around the Word of God, we invite your presence. We ask that you will remove every hindrance to your word being made real and strong in our hearts and lives. Father, we stand against the hand of the enemy. The scripture teaches us that the gates of hell will not prevail against God and his word and the spirit of the Lord. So we trust you, Lord, to accomplish your will and purpose here in in our midst this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 22. I'd like to read the first eight verses again. Genesis 22, beginning at verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said to him, Here am I. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said to him, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Last Sunday we began this chapter and we focused on the first two verses and we again pointed out the fact that the scripture teaches us here that God was testing Abraham. Testing Abraham in order to verify and to strengthen the faith of that man. He has brought him now to the supreme test of his life. And one of the most important uh, words in this passage is in the second uh, verse where we read the very first word use of the word love in Scripture. And And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Obviously, as you read that particular passage and through the years of your own experience, you have come to realize that opposed to what the world teaches, emotion is not, uh, love is not primarily an emotion. Love is primarily a commitment, a choice, a giving of oneself to another. The Hebrew word here that is used in this particular passage means exactly that. It is not primarily referring to an emotion. It's referring to a true 
commitment of the deepest level. Now, the word is used many other times in Scripture as you go through the Old Testament particularly. You'll discover that the word love is used in man-woman relationships in Scripture. For example, in 1 Samuel, where we read that Elkanah loved Hannah. And, of course, you know the story about Hannah and uh, the fi finally the birth of Samuel. The word is also used in God-to-man relationships, such as in Deuteronomy, where God said that he was choosing the Israelites and leading them and making of them a great nation because he loved their forefathers, referring, of course, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then we discover that the word, same word is used in man-to-God relationships particularly as we read in that powerful passage in Deuteronomy 6 where the scripture says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now that just really defines love right there. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to get the warm fuzzy of love or infatuation, or whatever it might be. But when you start defining it as that which involves your whole heart, your whole soul, and all of your might, then we begin to understand something about what love really is, as God sees love, particularly what we refer to in the New Testament as agape love, the love that God himself manifests. Love is God's greatest gift to mankind. We're familiar, I think, very familiar, with the passage in 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul says, But now abideth faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is, is love. Love is greater than faith, and love is greater than hope. Because, you see, love is at the foundation of it all. God so loved the world that he sent his Son. And that is the foundation of it all. And one of the interesting things that Scripture also makes quite clear is that true love is an attribute of God. God is love. And the Scripture tells us in 1 John 4, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Your capacity, my capacity to love in the biblical sense of the word is enhanced, is made real, is, is put in place by the fact that we have God in our lives because God is love. And as he manifests himself through us, one of the attributes which will show in us is the attribute of love. You and I cannot love if God is not in our lives. The world cannot love. What the world talks about as, as love is uh, purely, uh, almost purely a a warm fuzzy. It's really another expression of selfishness. Because when you really look at it, why do people do some of the things they do in the name of love? Well, at the root of it is the desire to exalt themselves, really. Because they cannot love in the true sense of the word if they do not have God. I think what's really interesting in this passage is you, you see the significance of the context of the first use of love. The context here is a relationship of a father to a son. 
And of course, this passage is giving us a very, very strong parallel. Abraham and Isaac are analogous to the Father and to the Son, to God the Father and to Jesus Christ. This is a very clear analogy that you find as you read down through this particular passage of Scripture. And you'll notice that it not only deals with the love of a father for his son of Abraham for Isaac, but within the context of what? Of a sacrifice that is about to be made. Of that father sacrificing his son. It's no accident that that is exactly what God was later to do in Jesus Christ, his son. And the parallel is, is just right down to the, uh, almost to the final uh, event of the story as you read about it here today. It was a great sacrifice for Abraham, profound sacrifice for him to have to make, to give his only son. You'll notice how, uh, how the Lord says it. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. He's not saying, well, take that kid over there that you can hardly stand and go up and burn him on the mountain. You know, some people might say, great, let me add it, you know. <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully not. But there are times when, uh, you know, our love is somewhat strained. But the, the emphasis was, was upon this, this great love of, of his only son. Now, was this his only son? He had another son, did he not? He had another son whose name is Ishmael. What is God saying here? God is not denying his fatherhood of Ishmael. God is saying, this is the son that I have given to you. This is the son that I had predicted would come. This is the son that I had planned for. Ishmael was not going to be in the flow of God's plan. I'm not saying that Ishmael was a surprise to God. He was not. Of course not. Uh, our sin is not a surprise to God either, but God doesn't say, go out and sin because I plan for it. No, not at all. And that doesn't mean that Ishmael was born as a, as a boy who couldn't do anything but sin because uh, he wasn't you know, in, in God's perfect plan for Abraham. Everyone is responsible for his, himself or herself in uh, God's eyes. But in God's eyes, this is his only, his only son. Yet when God gave his son, the love that was manifest there was so much more total and more perfect than Abraham was able to display relative to Isaac that God's sacrifice was supremely greater. Supremely greater. Uh, you know, as you read through Hebrews, there are the comparisons given from the Old Testament and, and comparing it to Jesus Christ and the, uh, the uh, Aaronic priesthood compared to the Melchizedek priesthood. And as you go on through there, you keep finding, finding the word the better, the more supreme. In Christ, everything was the best at its supreme level. And so Christ's death would be so much more perfect than Isaac's could have been, even if Isaac had actually died at this time. Well, God told Abraham to go to Moriah, the land of Moriah, and there to make a sacrifice. The question was, or is, where was Moriah? Now, apparently, Abraham knew where Moriah was because he just picks up and goes the very next day. You'll notice he doesn't 
hassle God. He doesn't uh, try to run the opposite way like Jonah did for uh, months on end. He picks up the next morning and goes to do what God has asked him to do. Well, as far as determining where Moriah was, we learn from this passage, first of all, that it was over a two days journey from Beersheba. Okay, over a two days journey. Because in verse 4 it says, On the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. So on the third day they weren't yet there, but apparently they arrived there on the third day. So we could say it was at least two and a half days journey. I think we could fairly uh, say that as we look at this particular passage. Now we're told that they took a donkey and two young men that went along from Abraham's household. There were four men thus, Abraham, the two young men, and his son Isaac, one donkey. The chances are pretty good that they didn't ride the donkey, that the donkey became the beast of burden, that he carried the wood, the food, the water, whatever was needed for the journey, and that they all walked, which tells us something about the speed at which they must have moved. A very, very you know, slow pace, as fast as you could walk, not trying to set any records. Thus, Moriah would be about 50 miles from Beersheba, because in two and a half days, uh, with a donkey and uh, with no particular motivation to move terribly quickly, 50 miles would be about as far as you would probably walk in that particular length of time. Remembering that when you come from Beersheba to go up towards Jerusalem, you climb the mountain because you have to follow the road and the road takes you from Beersheba across the Negev and up to Hebron, which is over 3,000 feet in elevation, and then slowly downhill towards Jerusalem. So it was an uphill climb for part of the way, which of course slowed down the pace. We're also told in this passage, or we can infer from this passage, that the heights of Moriah were significant enough to be seen from a distance because Abraham saw the place from a distance. He saw the mountains up ahead, which were part of the land of Moriah. And so it was not in an insignificant place, at least visually. <clears throat> now, there is a major clue in Scripture as to where Moriah was. In fact, it's only mentioned one other time in Scripture. The word Moriah shows up only one other time in Scripture, and that's in the passage on your outline in 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. Do I have first on the outline? Oh, I'm sorry. It's supposed to be 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 3, 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had appeared had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, or as in one other passage says, Arauna the Jebusite. From this we understand, I think I th very clearly, that Mount Moriah became the temple site. Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him on the site of what would later become the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if you've ever studied the geography of this, I don't mean by necessarily being there, but, but looking at the maps 
of this particular region. Old Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of the Jebusites, the one that David conquered, uh, was arrayed down a ridge. And, and that ridge was called the Ophel. And the city was very, very small, just a few acres. The top of the Ophel levels out on the top of the mountain there, which during the days of Solomon became the temple site. During Solomon's days, the walls were extended to incorporate the temple site. So the area of Jerusalem was more than doubled during the days of Solomon as he added in the temple site. And if you go there, you, will, you can walk uh, around the uh, southern end of the city of Jerusalem, the current city of Jerusalem, I mean the old city. And as you walk through the valley there to come around into the Kidron Valley, uh, you're walking below the Ophel. And in order to come up to the temple site, you have to literally climb uphill. I mean, the uh, path leads uphill as you come to the, to the temple site. And so it was on that flat, relatively flat area that uh, the sacrifice was made, it would seem, from what evidence we have in Scripture. Now today, on the mountain site, on the top of the uh, temple platform, is located a mosque, two mosques actually, but the one mosque is most significant, and that's the Mosque of Omar, which is called the Dome of the Rock. And that particular structure has been standing uh, up there ever since the 7th, uh, 8th, 9th century, long in there, originally built, then it was damaged and rebuilt. And it's, it's, it's located over the top of a rock. That's why it's called the Dome of the Rock. And you go inside, and in the very middle of this mosque is the high point of Mount Moriah. It's a rock sticking up. Oh, phew. I forget how big it is in area, maybe about a quarter of the size of this room, the top of the rock, which is in the middle of this dome. And the reason that they built the dome over it is because supposedly in the seventh century, Muhammad ascended to heaven from that rock. He, he got on his horse in uh, Mecca, and in one night, he rode from Mecca to Jerusalem, went to heaven, came back down, and rode back to Mecca all in one night. Now, obviously, this was miraculous because it's a very long ways from Mecca to Jerusalem. But that's their, that's their tradition. That's their legend. And if you go in there, they will show you Muhammad's footprint on the rock. And you could argue that that little indentation, you, know, you could say, I suppose it's a footprint. But anyway, that's why they built it over there. But not only that, because that is the traditional site of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, or intended sacrifice of Isaac. Now today, due to the research that's been done, there is located just a little ways from the Dome of the Rock, a little pagoda, which is called the Dome of the Chain. And under it is a little rock about a meter in diameter which is sticking up, and many argue that that is actually the point over which the temple was built, not the Dome of the Rock, which is kind of interesting. And uh, the, they've done underground radar, seismic wave, you know, to try to determine the outline or the probable location of the old temple, and they discovered the old temple was probably not centered over the Dome of the Rock.
but probably over this other spot. And so it's very, very interesting as you study that. Now the upland of Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. If you, if you visit Jerusalem, you're at about 2,500 feet above sea level. Now, the Temple Mount is not the highest point around there. There are other points that are higher. Mount Scopus is higher. The top of the Mount of Olives is higher. There are other higher points around. But this Jerusalem upland, the whole, the whole mountainous area, is quite visible from the valleys to the west. And that's apparently what Abraham saw. And we got up there, he was to make the sacrifice on one of the mountains that God would show him. And so God led him to this place. It doesn't say in the word how God would show him, but somehow he knew that this was the spot where the sacrifice was to be made. About 50 miles from Jerusalem to Beersheba, by the roads as they existed in those days. Interestingly enough, that's about how far it actually was. And easily could have taken two and a half days to make the journey. So these things all fall into place. All these things fit for that being the actual site, even as it has been considered the actual site by, by the, um, what shall I call them, the, the legends, the, the stories that have come down through the centuries amongst both the Arabs and the Jews, separate from what Scripture says. Oral tradition, generation to generation. Was that maybe part of the underlying reasoning for David buying that floor, that threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite, and building the temple there? It's not expressed. It, it doesn't say that that's the reason David bought it. He bought it because he saw God appear there, and God indicated that he should buy it. But was that the underlying reason? Did David, was David consciously aware of the fact that this is the traditional site? I really kind of think so. There's some important clues in this passage to Abraham's thinking, particularly in, in verse 5, Genesis 22, 5. Notice the wording of that particular verse. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. And, of course, by implication, the we could be stuck on both sides of the word and, right? And we will wor worship and we will return to you. This is the implication of the verse there. We will worship and we will return. Now this seems very much to fit with Abraham's response to Isaac when Isaac said, well, look, the wood's here, the fire's here, but Father, where's the lamb? Where's, where's the sacrifice? Obviously, Abraham didn't tell Isaac you know, before they left home, uh, I'm taking you with, you with me on this journey because I'm going to sacrifice you on that mountain up there. You know, it probably wouldn't have been a very pleasant journey for the young man uh, if he had been told that ahead of time. So notice again Abraham's response in verse 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here am I. 
He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. For the burnt offering, my son. And that was a sufficient answer for Isaac. They went on together, it says. That was a sufficient answer. Isaac trusted in the wisdom of his father. And Isaac trusted in the God of his father. How much had Abraham trained this young man? How much had he taught him about the ways of God? I think this passage teaches us indirectly how much Abraham actually taught his son about the God he trusted, the God he followed, the God who had appeared to him, the God who had repeatedly promised to him that he would raise up from him a great nation. And I think he told that son that in you the promise is rooted. Out of you will come this great nation. And so Isaac had a confidence there in his father and in the God of his father. This particular statement in verse 8 of Genesis 22 is a prophecy. It's not only a prophecy of what would happen within the next few hours, but of course it's a prophecy of what would happen on that mountain 2,000 years later. What did John the Baptist say of Jesus when he was out baptizing and Jesus suddenly appeared? He said, Behold the Lamb of God. In the fifth chapter of Revelation, we have a beautiful uh, account given by the Apostle John. And there he, 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 he describes what? A lamb that was slain. Now, if you look into the Greek there of, of that fifth chapter of Revelation, you discover that the portrait there, it tells of the lamb standing there. And the portrait is that the lamb was standing there with blood down its wool as if it had been sacrificed, the throat had been cut. That's the image that you have there, a sacrificed lamb, yet alive, of course, but yet one that had been sacrificed, the lamb that was slain. Those are the words which John uses there in that fifth chapter. And so Abraham, certainly unbeknownst to himself here, was prophesying of that ultimate sacrifice that would be made on that same mountain 2,000 years later. Verse 9, then, it came, then they came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, 
because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. When they arrived on the top of Mount Moriah, of the mountain of Moriah, which we now would refer to as Mount Moriah, they could have surveyed the landscape, and I'm sure they did at first. Abraham looked around, and he could have looked down across the Cadron Valley and up to the other side, and there was the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, of course, would have been in its uh, more natural state in those days, not devastated as you and I would see it today by 4,000 years of warfare, uh, which has uh, destroyed most of the vegetation in the Holy Land. But I'm certain that Abraham didn't realize that it would be on that very mountain that 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ would ascend to his Father in triumph over the grave. Now, when it came to building a stone altar, one of the things the Holy Land does not lack is stones. It is the stoniest land you have ever seen. Everywhere, stone, stone, and more stones. And they have all kinds of stories about that, you know, when God was distributing stones around the world, he had a bunch left over, so he just dropped them all in, uh, in, uh, in Palestine. Well, uh, Palestine is largely limestone, uh, not exclusively. There are some other outcroppings, uh, volcanic materials, but much of it is limestone. And uh, because, you know, it's, it's a cl the climate is very similar to here. And you have significant dry seasons, and as a result, limestone tends to produce or be reduced, often to numerous outcroppings of rocks and lots of stones everywhere. That's why the, the Palestinians have so much fun over there uh, pelting the soldiers, because ammunition is everywhere. <laughs> <clears throat> so Abraham took the stones that were lying around, certainly stones of significant size, and he piled them into a very rude and crude altar. Then on top of the altar, he placed the wood that Isaac had lugged up the mountain. Now that tells us something about Isaac. It tells us Isaac wasn't a little five-year-old or probably an eight-year-old. He probably was at least 12 or maybe even a teenager uh, in order to carry the wood because we're not talking about a little stack of sticks here. I mean, he's going to, the, the theory was, he was going to offering, offer his son as a burnt offering. That takes a little bit of wood. And so the son uh, trekked up the mountain uh, with this wood on his back. So he was not just a mere tiny child. He was probably mostly full grown. He tied his son up. Can you imagine the questions that Isaac may have verbally voiced? Certainly the questions in his heart as his father tied him, and then, with his cooperation, placed him on the wood. Think of what the thoughts were that were going through Isaac's mind. This man, Abraham, was torn. He was torn, I think, between the tears of, of horror and great expectation. What is God going to do? 
God's got to do something miraculous here. This just isn't God to allow me to sacrifice my son with nothing coming out of this. His faith was so great. So great was Abraham's faith that he actually picked up the knife. He didn't just look at it and say, oh, I sure hope I don't have to do this. He picked up the knife. And the implication is he raised the knife to do what he had to do to cut his own son's throat. I think that's where this, at this point, is where the Hebrews passage just really looms so largely, where the words there are, he considered that God is even able to raise men from the dead. He had no certainty that he wasn't going to be able, that he wasn't going to be required to slay Isaac, to actually carry out the deed. But he was firmly convinced that God would raise this young man literally from the dead if that's what God intended to do and if, if he actually had to carry out the sacrifice. I think questions were in, in his mind, uh, as I mentioned last week. Yes, he did obey. He obeyed instantly, but I don't think without question. I think his heart and mind were filled with questions. Oh, God, can this be? Are you the one really telling me to do this? Why would I do this? The pagans do this. You know. And there's nothing more sad to read than accounts of the way the Phoenicians sacrificed their own children to try to appease their gods when, when times really got serious. I mean, it's just gross. And, and, you know, that this isn't just a story because archaeologists have gone in there and they have uncovered uh, whole cemeteries full of little urns, full of the ashes of little children that were burnt to the gods, to Baal. Well, God had promised to raise up a nation through Isaac, so somehow or other God was going to have to raise up. If, if this hand came down and that boy died, which Abraham had no reason to believe wouldn't be what would happen, then he knew God had promised to raise up a nation through Isaac. God was going to have to perform a miracle. And even though he had never seen a person raised from the dead, there was nothing in Scripture to indicate that Abraham had ever seen anyone raised from the dead or even heard of anyone raised from the dead. Where did he get the idea? Where could he get that kind of faith? Well, from God alone. God is the one who gives us faith in our hearts. But what Abraham was doing was proving to himself and to all posterity that he trusted God implicitly and would obey God to the greatest extreme. Certainly this was a testing time for Isaac, and we can't leave Isaac out of this. I mean, Isaac, I think, was big enough to have resisted. Isaac could have run down the mountain, and Abraham would never have caught him. <laughs> you know, the kid probably could run twice as fast as Abraham could. And yet there is no indication here of any resistance. I, I doubt that Abraham, you know, if the kid, if, if Isaac were fairly well grown, uh, Abraham probably couldn't just pick him up and put him up on the altar. He probably had to have his cooperation in helping to get him up on the wood. Isaac was also being prepared, you see, for what God would do through Isaac. Isaac was discovering the reality of faith. And that faith did not just apply to his father, but that faith applied to him too. He had to believe not only in the word of his father, but primarily in the word of the God of his father. 
because his father was capable of making a mistake, but God is not. And thus, he was prepared. Knife in hand, I think Abraham's eyes were turned to heaven in one final act of imploring submission, poised to make the greatest sacrifice that a father could ever be asked to make, to slay his own son, his only son. Notice how many times that God says that. Your son, your only son. Your son, your only son. Your son, your only son. God said it over and over and over again. Driving home the point. Because it would be God's only son that he would sacrifice. The only begotten of the Father. At the very moment when he was ready to bring the knife down, the voice spoke. Now, you and I are impatient. You and I want God to work now. We don't want to be against the wall, ready to be run over by the Mack truck or whatever, you know. We want God to work far enough ahead of time so we don't have to be concerned about being against the wall or about being in the foxhole with mortar shells dropping all around us, you know. We want God to act sooner than that. But God doesn't promise to do that. God promises to meet us at our point of need, and sometimes he takes us to the very last moment, it seems to us. And certainly in this case, it was the last moment. But at that moment, God spoke, Abraham, Abraham. Now, if there ever was a time to be listening to God, that was the moment, right? If he had turned a deaf ear to God, it would have been too bad. But he had a voice. I mean, he was expectant. I think he was waiting for God to say something. You know, at some moment, whether before or after the sacrifice, he expected, I believe, that God would speak. From the 12th verse of this chapter, we can understand that, again, this was a theophany. The implication is that uh, God is the one who is speaking because at the end of the verse he says, from me, implying God, the voice of the angel of the Lord speaking here. Suddenly Abraham notices a ram caught by his horns in the bushes. Now just think about it for a moment. He's on top of this mountain. He's prepared to slay his only son. I think it was deathly quiet up there. You, you probably could have heard the proverbial pin drop. Now if there had been a ram caught in the bushes all along, he certainly would have known it. That ram had not been caught in the bushes before. I don't think that ram was even on the mountain before. I believe God put that ram there instantaneously. It was a miraculous event that God brought that ram. I don't think it was kind of wandering up the mountain and just at the right time got its horns caught because the animal would have been heard by Abraham before this, I think. What it teaches us is that the incarnation was a miracle. The resurrection, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of this was a great miracle of the Almighty to bring salvation to us all. Can you imagine, can you think down through the course of history whenever a ram would have been offered with greater thankfulness on the part of the offerer? You know, when the 
thousands and thousands of rams and, and uh, ox calves were sacrificed when the temple was dedicated. I don't think the thankfulness was there to the intensity of Abraham's thankfulness and Isaac's thankfulness that this ram would die. And you'll notice that it, uh, it, it teaches us in verse 13 a very, very important principle. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, a ram behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. I think it came from the hand of God. Oh, it could have, I suppose, wandered up the mountain, and Abraham, in the intensity of what he was doing, didn't notice. That's always a possibility. But I, I feel a ram was just brought there by God. So whatever the case might be, it was a miracle. However, God brought that ram there, and God had caught by its horns in the thicket. So the Lord said, or, or that is the scripture teaches us here, that he was burnt as an offering in the place of Isaac. Thus this ram was a substitute. Its death was substitutionary. And of course, it doesn't take much theological background to know how that prefigures the substitutionary death that Christ would die on, be, on behalf of us all. The sacrifice that he made for us. We simply have to believe. Repent and believe. And that sacrifice is real for us. We do not have to actually sacrifice an animal. And of course, even those who did sacrifice the animals in the Old Testament, that sacrifice did not in and of itself take away their sin. It was the faith in God based on what Christ would do in dying on the cross. You and I, before we came to know Christ, were under the penalty of sin, ready to die the spiritual death that God had promised. Let me just uh, turn back for a moment to the second chapter of Genesis and remind us of what God's words were there. In verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. And of course we looked at that. We know it doesn't mean that literally on that day he would keel over and drop dead like Ananias and Sapphira, because he did not. He went on to live the better part of a millennium. We know that in that day he died spiritually. He, he became what we are before we are born again, dead spiritually, incapable of understanding God or his word, incapable of achieving eternal life. Christ's substitutionary death, which occurred, well, who's to say, at what point in history, we know what time it took place, but whether it was central in history or what, we don't know yet, probably closer to the present than to the past, the ancient past. But that substitutionary death that Christ died was not an event which suddenly changed everything. 
in God's way of viewing men and women on this planet. Because the scripture te teaches us that Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, in God's mind, it was done. And so as this lamb was sacrificed on the top of Mount Moriah, it was symbolic of the death that Christ would die. The blood of that ram did not cleanse away any sin because Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats and so forth does not cleanse sin. It merely serves as a covering. It, it, it serves as a symbol for the blood of Christ which takes away our sin. So thankful was Abraham there on that mountaintop that he called the mountaintop Yahweh Jireh. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide for himself a lamb. And so the Lord did provide. His faith was rewarded and he commemorated the place so that he and all those who would follow him would remember that is the site, that is the mountain where Yahweh Jireh revealed himself. God revealed himself as the ultimate provider, the provider of that sacrifice which would atone for our sins ultimately. And it would be on that mountain, not at that site. Christ died outside the walls of Jerusalem. Christ did not die on the Temple Mount, but it was still on that Jerusalem uplands that Christ did die 2,000 years later, and the ultimate sacrifice would be made for all mankind. In the 16th through the 18th verses, or the 16th and 17th verses here of this particular passage, oops, I'm in the wrong book here, we discover God again reaffirming his promise. How many times has he made this promise to Abraham? And he now is again reaffirming it. And he's sealing it with an oath made on his own name. And as we read about that, Hebrews again gives us so much light of understanding on what happened there when God swore again by his own name to carry out his promise. In Hebrews chapter 6, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. In order that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, ha we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. God swore on his unchangeable nature, 
His unchangeable promise, His unchangeable word. The word of God is immutable. It cannot change. It will not change. In spite of the fact that we live in a world today when people who are calling themselves Christians are changing God's word all the time. They're saying, well, God didn't really mean that. What he really means is this, you know, and coming up with an interpretation that allows them to do or to be what they want to be, irrespective of what the scripture clearly, plainly teaches. And as a result, we have numerous people around this country, like the, the, the wackos in Waco, you know, and all across this land, the, the name of Christianity, of course, is brought into disrepute because people are not living by the teaching of the Word of God. And so much the church today, and when I say the church, I don't mean the capital C church that is the true and the living church, but the institution of the church which exists today. You know, you've probably read the statistics. Uh, supposedly of the population of the world today, 1.6 billion are Christians. 1.6 billion out of the 5.5 billion on this planet are supposed to be Christians. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means 1.6 billion people uh, adhere to some form of Christianity in the broad sense of the word, Christendom. They have been raised in a, quote, Christian country like Ireland, you know, or, or whatever it might be. And that has nothing to do with the true born-again uh, church of, of Jesus Christ in the sense of numbers. Just a fraction of that probably truly makes up the church of the living God. Well, let me just uh, well since, let me let me just say another thing here because I'm talking about the promise that God had made here to uh, Abraham again. You remember God had made first made the promise to Abraham when Abraham was still in Haran, and that's recorded in the 12th chapter of Genesis, and they gave. Uh, few more details after the encounter with Melchizedek, remember? And that's in the 15th chapter of Genesis. And then we have them further elaborated at the time of the birth of Ishmael in the 17th chapter of Genesis when Abraham was 99. Now probably about 40 years or so later uh, from the very first statement, that is, God is renewing his promise to the one he called his friend. Abraham would father a great nation and through his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that is made so clear, we won't take time to look at the Galatians 16. We've looked at it before. But in Galatians 16, it is very, very explicit who was the object of that promise. Not in seeds, as in plural, that is in all the descendants of Abraham, but in seed that is singular, and that is in Jesus Christ would the promise of all the nations being blessed through Abraham be fulfilled? And that's what Paul is saying there in the third chapter of Galatians. And so Abraham is now to see the fulfillment of this more uh, fully because of the great miracle that was performed there on the top of Mount Moriah. And he knew that through his son, his only son, God would raise up a great nation.